the Empire Podcast this week, things are getting spooky as we discuss scary films in the run-up to Halloween. We dissect the week's new releases in our laboratory, including the return of James Bond in Skyfall. We answer your questions, and Jeffrey Combs, Dr. Herbert West himself, comes into the Empire Pod booth for a very reanimated chat. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris von Frankenhewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that's surgically attached to other podcasts, file the mouth, and... Yeah, maybe I shouldn't finish that. As if we're going to bring you a full and frank discussion of the week's reviews and movie news, albeit with a more sinister tinge than usual, because Halloween is coming up. I should probably stop doing that as well. Uh, Joining me this week are three universal monsters I refer to as my colleagues at Empire. First up is a lady who isn't really a bride of Frankenstein, (laughs) but she came close after going on a few dates when they met in Guardian Soulmates. He's a a lovely guy, but he will insist and keep leaving bits of himself lying around the house. It's Helen O'Hara. Hello. I have kept the hairstyle, though, because that's quite... (laughs) streak you know I think it really suits it's pretty funky thank you yeah Yeah. Uh, in in a rogue kind of way yes well that's I think rogue was the influence on Bride of Frankenstein yes I think so I think that's the way it works that's the way it works Hmm. something that comes 60 years later Influences the thing in the 1930s. Uh, next up is a man so nefarious, so terrifying, he makes Jigsaw look like a Fisher Price toy. It's Nick DeSemlian. I want to play a game. Oh, God. How was that? Uh, it was terrible. Well, what, what sort of game do you want to play? Monopoly? <laughs> nefarious, got... evil, murderous Monopoly? Or just oh, Monopoly? Yeah. All the houses are haunted. <laughs> Don't go in room 237 of the hotel in Mayfair. Uh, and last but not least, is the youngest member of the team. But don't let that fool you. His mother was a jackal. Was she? No, master. <laughs> oh, dear God. Uh, please grasp the seven daggers of Megiddo and prepare to welcome the Antichrist that is Ali Plum. Hello. <laughs> I sounded like more like a goat. I have no idea what that is. What are you doing? Is that Igor? Igor. Yeah. That was my Igor. This is the most terrifying podcast yet. Igor. <laughs> Igor. For all the wrong reasons. I, I, Played, of course, by uh, Bela Lugosi. Um, and the original, anyway, the original Igor. But I always thought he'd be played by Peter Laurie myself. What do you oh, think, Oh, no, I don't. No, no okay. I don't think Peter Laurie has anything to do with anything. Ever. It's time to open up a crypt and drive a stake through the heart of our listeners. Uh, questions. Sorry, listeners' questions. Uh, not our listeners, that would be counterproductive. Uh, this week I asked you specifically for scary-themed questions, and you didn't disappoint. At Mark underscore Bothwell frightened the life out of us with, Do you guys enjoy watching movies on tablets or phones? That's not very scary. That's not oh, scary at all. That's not scary at all, but it's a good point. Do we? And he goes on to say, Does the convenience eclipse the enjoyment? So... Do you, or are you purist? Do you like your films on as big a screen as possible? Uh, I don't watch films on tablets or phones. Um, I suppose it's conceivable that I might watch TV shows that way, but I haven't ever, so no. Okay. I watch a lot of TV, uh, free SkyGo on my iPad, but yeah, if I'm watching a big film, big blockbuster film, definitely wait and watch it on the TV. It's the same reason if you're on a plane. You know, you don't watch The Avengers, you watch, you know... I deliberately choose the worst-looking films. Yes. I still have to kind of want to watch them, otherwise I wouldn't watch them. But I, if there's anything that I haven't seen, like, you know. Basically, if there's an explosion in it, you sh- should probably not be watching it on a screen that's five inches tall. I think the only reason why you'd use, uh, you know, your iPhone or whatever to watch a TV show is if it's like a comedy panel show game or a maybe news night or something, just something you could mm. essentially listen to and it does the same job. I hate looking at a small screen. So don't watch films by, by great visualists on, on your tablets. Correct, yes. I, I, I have watched films on tablets, mainly because my internet connections at, at home is so bad I can't watch films on, say, SkyGo on my Xbox 
on my big TV. So I, I tend to watch films like that on SkyGo on my on my iPad, which is good. Which is good fun. Watch things like Targets and Rounders and stuff. It's, it's okay. It's, it's not too bad. You can watch Netflix on your iPhone. I have it on my iPhone. The app. I never do that. But I would. I, I haven't used it, and I can't imagine ever using that. Actually, I've used it for comedy, stand-up comedy gigs and stuff. Like people like you know Craig Ferguson or. Louis C.K. I watched it on my phone because it doesn't matter it's just a guy talking but yeah a, a film with great visuals no keep it for the biggest screen possible that's what I would say to that you. was a terrifying question there it was it was pretty terrifying uh, now we have a question from at Chris Hewitt on Twitter um, hang Wait, on. Who? who is that guy who is that guy he's a loser mm-hmm. uh he asks very, very simply because you forgot to <laughs> mention early on to you guys. Uh, what's your favorite horror movie? Very, very simple. What's your favorite horror film? Or sorry, what's your favorite scary movie? That was Ghostface. I actually quite like Scream. Actually, I might, I might just say Scream. Scream, like, yeah. It, it it was very clever. It was funny, and it was it also scared the bejesus out of me. I have so, no more bejesus. Yeah, I don't think it's aged particularly well. We watched Scream and Scream Two about a year ago in preparation for Scream Four, hmm. and uh, yeah, the Scream Scream Two in particular has plot holes you could drive a bus through, but it's okay. I suppose. I'm not a huge fan. Yeah, Ali. I'm not the biggest horror nut in the world, uh, so I'm going to give the kind of pat answer that I, I think is genuinely true, though, is uh, Shaun of the Dead. Still, genuinely, if you want to count that as a horror movie, then then I'd say that. But really, I'm not the world's biggest horror buff, so expect my contributions for the rest of this podcast to be utterly scintillating. Well, you can you can groan, you can moan, you can do, like, you can do that. Yeah, I'll do that, yeah. Yeah, you can rattle your chains. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. You can possess Nick. That'll be fine. Always an option. So you do you actively oh avoid God. horror films, or do you just not like horror films? It's just not my bag. I mean, I like them around this time of the year. I mean, I just, you know, when I sit down and go, "What am I going to watch tonight?" It's just often not something that occurs to me. Mm-hmm. I get a kick out of it when I get a kick out of it. I remember when we watched the Paranormal Activity uh, screening that we did in that haunted pub, yeah, the spooky haunted pub that you mentioned the other day, and I remember thinking, "Yeah, I absolutely loved that. That was a really great experience." But for some reason, it's never really been on my radar so I will be the one person I think in this room who's not fully on board are you a fraidy cat I'm an afraidy cat I'm a scary mouse <laughs> I don't like the mega gory stuff particularly unless you're talking about brain dead or bad taste in which case get it on uh, my, I guess my favourite is Rosemary's Baby which mm. a film which uh, is kind of like one of those chilly 70s paranoia kind of thrillers but with evil witches and sinister chocolate puddings in it um, <laughs> I love me a good sinister chocolate pudding it's got some really good sinister chocolate puddings <laughs> um, and I recently saw uh, one of the old Hammer films The Devil Rides Out which I absolutely love fantastic I recommend that I love Devil Rides Out um, my favourite horror film oh god uh, it's probably my favourite film Evil Dead 2 Evil Dead 2 <laughs> um, but I can't look beyond uh, either The Thing which is amazing uh, I forgot The Thing The Romero's Dawn of the Dead and The Omen um, I've never been a, I, I, I really appreciate The Exorcist I, I realise where that film is coming from but it's never really been high up on the list for me so there you go thanks at Chris Hewitt um, at CPM Doyle in the horror film version of an Empire interview who is your nightmare guest and he goes on to hashtag no personality hashtag short answers um, I guess this isn't really talking about people we've interviewed before who are nightmares I thought we could talk about that we've, we've, we've covered it before I will say of. as a rule mm. people who are terrifying on screen are gen- generally really really nice and really cool and nice to talk to as an example coming up later in this podcast Jeffrey Coombs mm-hmm. who if you saw him on screen you probably wouldn't get in a lift with him uh, but he turned out to be absolutely brilliant and in a non-horror way I spoke to Joe Pesci uh, not too long ago Joe Pesci I was quite scared about that yeah but, but he turned out I was to be, scared for you I'll be honest yeah. that was just a phoner <laughs> was, yeah he did psych me out a little bit at the beginning but uh, no he turned out to be very lovely 
Oh, that's good. And at the other end of the spectrum, I interviewed Emma Roberts uh, when she hadn't really done anything. It was for her very first film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and they gave me 20 minutes and I had probably about five minutes of questions given that her answers were about one word long. Because um, she was very young. Like, you know, she was, what, 15 or something at that point. So that was, you know, pretty scary. I think I started asking your pint of milk questions and we did oh, the really? pint of milk, yeah. Did you just start re-asking your questions? Can we, can we give it another go? Can we, yeah. <laughs> I interviewed someone, um, I probably won't say the name, but I interviewed someone uh, on the set of a major movie a year and a half ago and it was pretty much his first or second interview as well. And uh, it was really basic stuff. It was like, you know, tell us about your character or are you excited to be in a film of this size, etc. Et hey, those are my questions. Yeah, I know. Well, really basic generic stuff and he was just absolutely awful and um, and then his uh, his dad was on set and he came up to me later on and said you know he was really he was just really nervous he's never done interviews before and he was worried that he didn't give you good answers and he, you know you can do it again if you want if you want to and I went no he was brilliant of course he's fine and I just didn't want to do it again ever again but uh, I'll tell you you know once these microphones are off I'll tell you who he is um, uh, I guess the, the obvious answer for this and this would be a challenge for any interviewer would be you know, Tommy Lee Jones is notoriously uh, prickly in interviews and doesn't suffer fools gladly, so he'd, he'd do well with us. Uh, and uh, I, you know, you just want to, you just want to crack that nut, don't you? You want to be one of the few people who actually gets him to, you know, who elicits more than two word answers from Tommy Lee Jones. The first person ever. <laughs> the first person ever. Yeah, Harrison Ford can be tricky. I've also heard. Okay. He was lovely when I talked to him. I think I got him just after lunch. Maybe that's the key. Don't get him when he's hungry. Get him when he's just eaten. Okay. Top tip there. Writing that down. Good, good, good. Okay, CPM Doyle, hope that answered your question. Uh, oh, and by the way, at Bill underscore Sick, or Sitch, uh, responds to a story in last week's podcast where we said that an LFF screening of Rust and Bone was interrupted by the premature ejection of a couple who oh, were dear. apparently having sex. What? What's wrong? What's wrong with that? Chris, your double entendres are just continuing. It's awful. Anyway, like the ushers after the film, Bill has cleaned it up for us. He says, I worked at the LFF. I was at that screening of Rust and Bone. It was a woman having a panic attack, not sex. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. <laughs> okay. Writing it down. <laughs> Terrifying insight into my next love life. <laughs> oh, God. He is Jigsaw after all. Um, Jigsaw's not interested in sex, is he? Is he really? I don't want to know. I think the cancer is probably occupying more of his mind. I imagine the whoopee. I imagine the whoopee. I want to play a sexy game. None of those guys are really into sex. Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees or you know, I guess there's a I'll probably stop talking now anyway at Pent 001 steers us back onto a terrifying track as if the idea of Jason Voorhees having sex isn't more terrifying uh, he says what's your scariest moment in a film that's not a horror that's a good one I've got this one uh, this is Bilbo suddenly seeing the Bilbo. ring yes absolutely shocking totally freaks me out every time and I know it's coming you know when you watch it on Blu-ray you can see it in slow-mo that's extra terrifying <laughs> it's not CG it's a puppet that uh, they kind of morphed into the image of Ian Holmes' face because in the extras they show the puppet and it's it, it's the most hor- I wonder where that puppet ended up because it's just horrifying imagine they burnt it <laughs> um, I saw there was a great thing on the internet today about um, behind the scenes photographs from great horror films and the very last one is a, is a gif of Linda Blair getting made up on The Exorcist uh, with her puppet with the, the puppet whose head swings around 180, um, which is one of the uh-huh. images that's always terrified me in horror films. And uh, she's just sitting beside it, almost doing thumbs up, going, hey, look at this, it's amazing. I love that. I'd love to see a picture of Van Home with, uh, with that one. Yeah, that, that was pretty much my answer as well. 
I've got a couple of others. Helen, you go yeah. first. Well, I was uh, just on the Peter Jackson point. I was going to say the um, the bugs in King Kong, um, which good, I yeah. I remember watching from underneath my coat in the front row of the upstairs of the Odeon Leicester Square. It always annoys me in that sequence how the guy shoots the bugs off people without shooting him. It's completely irrelevant to this conversation. It, it, that always yeah. annoys me, but I do. Love I was that just happy that he shot the bugs. I'll be honest. <laughs> I was like, yay, no more bugs, hurrah! Okay, two more shot moments. Uh, the raptor lunging at Laura Dern near the end of Jurassic Park mm-hmm. and the bit in The Dark Knight where the mayor is talking near his window and the guy suddenly comes down on the rope slams into him mm. do you remember that? yeah yeah I remember that yeah but also the, the Joker's video is pretty scary yeah that's, yeah, that's pretty scary Ali? for me talking about Jurassic Park it would be Samuel Jackson's arm suddenly appearing that I remember spooking me big time which wasn't in the script because of the uh, hurricane um, Sam Jack the set was destroyed so they had to get rid of Sam Jackson's actual death scene mm. and add the arm bit it's interesting because we we consider Jaws a horror film, but we don't really consider Jurassic Park a horror film. Why is that? We're just too scared. We're too scared. To go, <laughs> yeah, we, we don't want to go near it. Uh, a lot of people wrote in along similar lines today as well, saying scariest moment in Disney films because Disney films can go can, Ooh, can go there as well. There Toy, were some, someone yeah. mentioned uh, Toy Story three. Sorry, I don't I didn't make a note of your name, but uh, Toy Story three towards the end, I guess, when the end they're heading towards that fire. That's, that's a pretty scary moment. It's less scary than just devastating. I think. I mean, I wasn't so much scared as just yeah, just like tragic. I was. I, I genuinely thought for for a second they were going to do it. I really did. I think Big Baby in general is horrifically scary. Like yeah. when he stumbles brute-like onto the screen. I think they do a whole lightning flash or whatever. Yeah, that got me. I was like, oh, I hate that thing. Well, the, the, the mutated toys in, in mm. Toy Story in Sid's bedroom, they're pretty scary. And I think, I mean, Disney straight gets a... Uh, we sometimes overlook how scary some of those films are. I mean, for, for me, one of the scariest characters in cinema history has got to be the child catcher. Show me a kid who wasn't yep. terrified of the child catcher and I'll show you a weirdo. That's a, that's a properly, properly scary character. I'd say the same of quite a few Disney villains. Maleficent, who's my favourite, is, you know, a properly scary person. Two other children's uh, sort of things that terrified me when I was a kid. Care Bears, the movie. <laughs> Genuinely, go back. Or don't, I don't know if you can even find it these days, but the villain in that is horrific. And also, uh, Return to Oz. Return to Oz, that's Those a scary movie. Those things that had long arms and yeah. wheels. My God. Return to Oz is a deeply disturbing film. Deeply, deeply disturbing. Dorothy gets shock <laughs> therapy. Why do you think we ended up here, Chris? Because of Return to Oz. Oh, really? Okay, that's to blame. Um, at Bertie underscore D asks, a uh, bit of an obvious one, this, but best horror film, Death. Uh, Kevin Bacon in the original Friday the 13th is a good one. Um, it's pretty definitive for me. It's David Warner in The Omen. Oh, um, yeah. Being decapitated by... If you haven't seen The Omen, <laughs> sorry, but he gets decapitated by a flying pain. Pains, pains of glass, not pain. It's replayed from about 17 angles by Richard Donner, who clearly thought it was the centerpiece of his film, and he's absolutely right. That's just absolutely amazing. Uh, Captain Rhodes in Day of the Dead, Joe Pilato's character, who mm. gets ripped in two by zombies and dies defiantly yelling, joke on him. Uh, that's a great that, that's a great moment for me. And that echoes, uh, that's echoed in Dylan Moran's death in Shaun of the Dead. Mm, he doesn't say choke on it. He doesn't. I'm choking him. Fish. He'd say. Zombies. I just, uh, I've just got the lawnmower scene from Brain Dead playing out of my <laughs> yeah, head. So yeah, pretty much, yeah. I've just been enjoying that. <laughs> There's so many in Brain Dead. So uh, Brain Dead's that, still that, the only. It's got some amazing deaths. I mean, the last 45 minutes of that film is essentially just people getting killed in horrific but very entertaining ways. Which Final Destination had somebody getting killed through the plug at the bottom of a swimming pool? I remember oh, thinking that's that kind wrong. of inspired. That's Final Destination. Uh, sorry. 
the final the destination. One, the final destination. Yeah, that's pretty good. One. Yeah, that's that's a good movie for inventive deaths. Although it's too liberal with the use of CG, and none of them really feel real, which is a, which is a bit the, of a shame. The bus in the original one was pretty good, though. The the timing on that. The timing on that one it's is very brilliant. simple, but but the timing is great. You're absolutely right. The timing on that one is fantastic, and the uh, I love the um, the 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 sort of highway crash at the beginning of Final Destination 2 I think that's the best set piece in the, in the entire franchise so for me it's David Warner followed by Joe Palato and David Dead and then I've just thought of another one which is uh, the thing with the chest the guy's chest opens oh, up and, it's the two, and yeah. it, it kills the doctor so is that uh, like your leaderboard can they move up it's my leaderboard yeah yeah yeah. I think so okay. pretty, pretty definitive so, so far, next year we'll see if uh, yeah. something could be fine for the top spot um, moving on to at We Law who asks if you were going to survive a horror movie which movie character would you like by your side Oh, that's nice. I'm cheating. I'm going to say Marty McFly because he has a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Fair enough. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm struggling my film critic spirit here. Of course, elements of Back to the Future 2 are, in some ways, a horror film, would you say? No, Chris. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Helen? I don't know. I mean, I was thinking Ash. I don't know. He's a bit pervy. Isn't he? <laughs> what? What? He's not. You can't say that about Ash. He has a wandering hand, granted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that bombshell. Thanks for your questions, everyone. Uh, okay, it's competition time. Last week we had two competitions. Offered you the chance to win a House Season 1-8 to box set on DVD and an iRobot Blu-ray collectible box set in Sonny's Head. Sonny, of course, was the robot played by Alan Tudyk. And it is a 3D Blu-ray. It's got everything on there that you could possibly want. The ridiculously easy questions were, what's House's first name? And who wrote the short story on which iRobot was based? And the ridiculously easy answers were, Helen? Um, Gregory and uh-huh. Isaac Asimov. Yes, Gregory House. Gregory didn't write. No, <laughs> Gregory is the first name of House. <laughs> Isaac and Asimov. Isaac House. Asimov is the first name of House. That's it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> the ridiculously brilliant winners are John Neal, who wins the House box set, and Neil Boonin, who wins the iRobot box set, and also he wins the best competition winner name uh, prize as well. Uh, best one we've had for a while. Congratulations to both. This week's competition offers you the chance to win one of five Blu-ray copies of The Hunter, starring Willem Dafoe and Sam Neill. To stand a chance, answer this week's ridiculously easy question, which is, which Spider-Man villain did Willem Dafoe play? Was it the Green Goblin, the Hobgoblin, or the Goblin King? Also known as the Great Goblin. The Great... Really? Mm-hmm. The Great mm-hmm. Goblin? Yeah, he's That's... like a rapper. He's got several names. He's like a... yeah. <laughs> if you want to enter this competition, send in your answers to podcast at empireonline.com. That's also the email address you can use to send us any questions, or you can send questions to our Twitter feed, which is at Empire Magazine. The hashtag is Empire Podcast, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook, because we're there, and we're lovely. Thank you. Okay, time to see what's been going on in Hollywood and elsewhere this week. Uh, Helen... Hi, I have an unlikely story for you. Um, Nicholas Cage, uh, who of course uh, lately came in and gave us one of the best web chats ever, mm-hmm. um, is set to star in an ad- a new adaptation of the Left Behind books. And stunt legend Vic Armstrong is set to direct. Wow. Yeah. That's the story. Uh, the Left Behind books, for those of you who have avoided them and aren't you wise, frankly, um, are a series of books based around the sort of Christian uh, end of days mythology about the rapture. So apparently all the true believers get bodily lifted up to heaven ahead of Armageddon, which the rest of us then have to live through. So we basically die horribly and slowly as everything goes to pot um, and they get to sort of sit in heaven and munch popcorn, presumably. I'm not quite sure on that bit. 
Anyway, um, so the the series of books um, has been a huge bestseller in in certain circles. Um, They've already been adapted once in the 90s for a a series of low-budget films, um, and they're now set to try it again. So one of the same producers involved. Yeah, and Vic Armstrong set to direct and and Nicolas Cage to star. So, I I mean, you know, the mind boggles, frankly. So so what does this mean? Does this mean that uh, these films are going to have a bigger budget? They're they're trying to broaden the scope? Or does it mean this is where Nick Cage's career is now? Because the previous films had people like Lewis Gossett Jr. in them, Charles yeah. Martin Smith mm. Nick Cage isn't on that level yet is he? I wouldn't have thought so but having said that I mean the budget is it was quoted in the story I read is only 15 million which seems low for a Nicolas Cage film and also um, for, a, for a Nicolas Cage salary even I'm thinking if Vic Armstrong is directing mm. there's going to be a lot of action in it yeah I don't think. know how that would work so and it sounds like a lot of special effects would be needed to, it, to portray the other angels and creatures and stuff in this I don't believe so in, in the first one but there is the beginnings of the end of days right so um, I, I'm genuinely not quite sure how this is going to work what I can, what I do think is there's a real possibility um, that Nicolas Cage is just interested in this stuff mm-hmm. and that's why he wants to do it because I think he's the kind of guy if he was interested in something even if it was a bit beneath his sort of stardom level he might just go ahead and do it mm-hmm. we've seen him make odd career choices before yeah. so it could just be something like that but it does seem like an odd step I mean it, it's not confirmed yet you know it's the usual in talks talk so who knows but uh, it, it, yeah gosh this is one of those ideas that you remember that viral video a couple of years ago where it's a sketch about Nicolas Cage saying yes to simply every movie he's, he's offered <laughs> this sounds a little bit like that uh, I'm a bit baffled by that. This is very much in his wheelhouse, it sounds to me. It sounds like he's made most of the films he makes that involve, you know, mm. religious or kind of supernatural elements to it. That's that's what he it's that's what he's shame, into, I guess. He, yeah. he told us all about his shamanic style of acting, and this would certainly fit yeah, into that. And he has done a film... And I wouldn't be surprised if he thinks this is a documentary. He's, he's done a film about the end of the world <laughs> already, so... Yeah, uh, the, uh, well, I consider the no, the underrated knowing... Uh, which is yeah. which has uh, biblical overtones and it does, religious yeah. overtones in it as well. So, Flaming I mean, mooses. There might be something there. I, I'll be honest, I haven't actually read these books, but I've wanted to for quite a long time. I just can't quite bring myself to buy them. Mm-hmm. It feels wrong to spend money on them. But um, Vic Armstrong directing. That's interesting. Yeah. So, well, anyway, it's one to keep an eye on if it happens. Who's going to do uh, a second unit? <laughs> Honestly. His son, probably. Yeah. Lance. I'm, I'm interested in it because of the Vic Armstrong thing, although, obviously, Dan Bradley, the... The, the guy who did a lot of the action for the Bourne films and mm. a lot of other films his, his new his directorial debut Red Dawn has started screening in America and it's not going down well so we'll see if Vic Armstrong can buck the trend another second unit director who stepped up uh, we've mentioned him or well we mentioned the film already was uh, David Ellis on Final Destination 2 who went on to direct uh, Snakes in a Plane and his last film was Shark Night well, 3D quite. so there's a bit of a downward curve there uh, I would say uh, Nick what have you got I have robots. Um, really? Are yeah. they, they multiplying? They might be. Are you losing control? Well, well, they they might thrills. Because I'm talking about Transformers <laughs> 4. <laughs> chills, chills. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the words after the colon haven't yet been, been confirmed. But um, there has been talk online recently that Michael Bay has been in early talks with Mark Wahlberg, who's obviously starring in Bay's upcoming film, Pain and Gain, mm-hmm. uh, that he is talking to Wahlberg about potentially starring in Transformers 4. Huh. Um, now, that was going on last night. By the time we woke up here in London, uh, Michael Bay had issued a statement saying that that was nonsense. It was He was meeting with him about a completely different film. But, as we know, Michael Bay 
is a big liar sometimes. <laughs> You're still bitter, aren't you? Nick? He's lied to me and he's lied to Chris. He's lied to me, yeah. Yeah, uh, both the same lie, actually, about Megatron <laughs> not being in uh, Transformers 2. And also that Transformers 2 would be good. Yes, there was that as well. No, I Come on now. Come on. Fair comment. But uh, yeah, no, I, it got me thinking and I don't know. I started thinking... Mark Wahlberg in a Transformers film would be pretty cool. Maybe what would be even cooler is The Rock teaming up with Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> I think we can all get behind that one. Yeah, I, I heard but a rumor have... a couple of weeks ago that there was there was talk of a female lead for Transformers Four, as in a female lead who's not the love interest, who's of not the, the love interest of the male lead. That's interesting. Mm. Mm. But I guess not. Well, we'll see. You never know. You never know. Uh, would Mark Wahlberg replace Hugo Weaving as the voice of Megatron? <laughs> Possibly. Sort of laid-back Boston drawl to, to Megatron. <laughs> and think about The Rock in the, in the Transformers movies, that you have to believe that the Decepticons stand a chance of winning. And if The Rock's in it, then they don't. It's so, game over. <laughs> it's game over. You might as well just give up. Even Optimus Prime pales in comparison to the might of Dwayne Johnson. Even Unicron. Is it Unicron? <laughs> See the big one? The planet, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, Ali, what do you got? Uh, what I've got is one of my patented it's a new story it's a trailer though honestly it's a new story we can talk about <laughs> it on the podcast it still works I promise you uh, this is the news that Iron Man 3 finally released its teaser trailer after doing the ignominious thing of doing a teaser for a teaser trailer that lasted 15 seconds and revealed that yes Tony Stark will be in this one uh, so yeah Iron Man 3 trailer what did we learn that yes there will be indeed a Iron Patriot lookalike type thing a Stars and Stripes emblazoned version of the Iron Man suit now the question marks are still out on whether that is Iron Patriot from the comics or whether it is just War Machine dolled up in that kind of look uh, so yeah conjecture away because that's the early word isn't it the early word is this War Machine with a bit of a get up but then the James Badge Dale character might be Iron Patriot in the film who knows who knows who knows we've also got a, a first good look at Sir Ben Kingsley as the Mandarin we also get to hear his voice again that we already heard at Comic Con but it's uh, distinctly non-oriental it is entirely I'm not so much a tourist as a teacher kind of doing amazing. something like that yeah I think it's next. Sir Ben I'm so glad you could drop in and join us uh, no problemo <laughs> I, I've done as a Crichton um <laughs> And not as good as James's Crichton, but uh, I, my theory is that uh, the Mandarin is going to be next year's Bane. In that he has a quite silly voice, and he's going to well, be fun to do an impression of. We heard the, the we saw the Comic Con footage, uh, and his voice is different. It seems deeper in this. Uh, so maybe they've, they've gone back and changed it a little. Have bit. they done a Bane and re-recorded? Maybe they have. Maybe Who Tom knows? Hardy's come in to do his voice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got more hints of the extremist armour uh, with pieces of Tony's armour leaping onto his hand and obviously, as we've seen in the post and a couple of other stills, the metal coming out of his body or kind of appearing out of nowhere. Um, so that's all very exciting. So this is all nanotechnology kind of stuff where he can control the armour using his mind. Uh, it's essentially part of his body now. It's essentially part of his nervous system. So, yeah, it's a really interesting... Which is uh, really exciting. Yeah. And his nervous system loves the colour gold, hates hot or red. <laughs> uh, it's amazing what you can find out about your nervous system when it becomes a robot. Yeah. So that's good. I, I, you know, I, I'd love to see... I, I'm really interested to see this. I'm a huge Shane Black fan, and I think our feelings about Marvel movies, particularly the Avengers, have been well documented Wee-hee. in this podcast. <laughs> Wee-hee, essentially. Um, I, I, I'm really interested in this one. I, I've heard on the grapevine that there actually are some risks in this movie that you know that it's not just a, a formulaic sequel that's being packaged up. I don't think Shane Black would be interested in doing something like that. So, and certainly there are, there are indications that it goes into some. And I know it's it's quite cliche for a sequel to do so. Darker, darker. but it looks like it actually might have earned that darkness. Well, it looks for once, very much to me. Not saying it's 
imitating or copying at all, but it looks like the Dark Knight Rises of Iron Man films to me, where he's, you've got a villain who's going for his home, for everything that he's got, trying to break this guy down in the yeah. same way that, the, you know, the Batcave ended up... Not the Batcave, but the, the, his, the Batgarage or wherever he keeps all his uh, tumblers <laughs> and gets attacked by Bane. It's like a similar kind of thing going on there. I've, yeah. I've already heard this uh, comparison made a lot. Um, I just hope it's a bit more you know, coherent than I find The Dark Knight Rises to be. But I won't get on that particular hobby horse today. Um, but yeah, no, it, it does look it does look darker, but at the same time, it's kind of an, an earned darkness, I guess, because Tony Stark is a character who, you know, has some underlying problems. They've always been apparent, but they just haven't been on the surface. And if, if, if it brings those out, then I think we're in for quite a, an interesting film. Yeah, and uh, seeing uh, Stark on the on the back foot would be pretty interesting because the problem Iron Man Two had, I thought, was that it just basically tried to replicate the first movie. It was a bit of a romp, and uh, Stark does lend himself to to a darker treatment, a starker treatment, if you will. So, um, hugely excited by this one, and uh, you know, giving a Thor to is called the Dark World. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how how I hate this word how dark uh, Marvel's <laughs> taking phase two uh, leading up to the Avengers 2 in 2015 should be interesting I think they'll walk the line I think if you know Joss Whedon can Look. do anything he can he can he can no but he can he can he can balance darkness and true you know some humor but I don't think Joss Whedon has a lot of input into Iron Man 3 no not into Iron Man 3 but also, just in terms of those those future ones the Winter Soldier and so on as well yeah because you know, I'm going to say something. I think Shane Black's a better screenwriter than Joss Whedon. <gasps> I'm going to say. I that. will fight you outside that. afterwards. I'm going to say that. Of course, it would be remiss of us not to tell you that this is New Empire Week. I wish we had a jingle or some sort of fanfare for that. Um, da, 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 da. Thank you. Um, and what a new empire it is. This is our latest celebration of Peter Jackson's The Hobbit ahead of the release of the first film in December. And when I say this is more jam-packed than Bilbo's lunchbox, I'm not kidding. Because uh, he has lots of breakfasts in there because he's a hobbit. It wasn't yeah. referenced to his... Anyway, our entire feature section is dedicated to not only The Hobbit, and I mean the entire feature section, but the works of Peter Jackson. Uh, Nick... You did a lot of this stuff, so tell us a bit more. There is mucho hobbito Thanks, stuff. Nick. There's a lot of stuff. Um, I won't go through everything, but uh, every single one of the 13 dwarves gets interviewed and gets their own uh, sort of special Q&A. The font's really small as well. <laughs> uh, there's a huge interview with uh, Kate Blanchett. We put Ian McKellen, Sarah McKellen, into a box, and you have to buy the issue to find out why. We did indeed. <laughs> And uh, we also put together, which took a very long time, a huge oral history feature about Peter Jackson, where we talk to people like Edgar Wright, Kate Winslet, Neil Blomkamp, uh, get stories about Peter from them. But we also talk with people who have worked with Jackson all the way back to his early days, Bad Taste, and even some people who were on the set of Wurzel Gummidge Down Under, which uh, Jackson did the special effects for. So it's full of fun stories, which you probably haven't heard before. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's a good read. And there's also a look at all the locations from An Unexpected Journey. So you get a look at the Goblin Town, which is full of goblin-y goodness. Wow. And um, all kinds of places. And The Making of the Hobbit. The Making of the Hobbit. The book. Okay. The, bo oh, the book. Mm. Okay, excellent. Um, but in case The Hobbit doesn't entirely float your boat, and you believe me, there are some people out there for whom that's the case, uh, um, there's plenty more in the mag for you to enjoy. Uh, we have amazing reviews, of course. Two whole sections, cinema and DVD slash Blu-ray. There's tons of film news, including new interviews uh, about The Lone Ranger. James Mangold talks Wolverine exclusively. We also have a new exclusive picture from the film in there. And there's much, much more. I mean, this month's pint of milk is 
Werner Herzog and it is as absolutely bonkers as you might expect. It's a must read. Uh, the magazine complete with five amazing 3D lenticular covers. The Jackson 5 as we've now dubbed them is available now in all good, evil and undead news agents and of course Ooh. on the iPad. <laughs> Thanks Valley. Uh, of course in the iPad in pretty much every country around the world. If you don't buy it we're going to send Gimli after you to headbutt you in the nethers. Coming up to this brief, inconsequential, but more importantly, free jingle, we talk to the brilliant horror icon, Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs is a modern horror icon. He's one of the few actors in cinema history who can legitimately lay claim to two classic characters of the genre. He came to prominence, of course, as Dr. Herbert West, the fairy definition of a mad scientist, in Stuart Gordon's splendidly yucky reanimator in 1985, and he went on to play the character several times over the coming decades. But he's also wonderfully creepy and deranged as FBI agent Milton Dammers in Peter Jackson's Frighteners, which is Nick's favourite film. Or one of them, Nick? It's on the list. It's on the list. Uh, when Combs popped over to London recently for the Destination Star Trek event, we couldn't resist. So Nick and Phil DeSimlian kidnapped him, cut off his head, popped it in a tray, pumped it full of a glowing green reagent, and interrogated it. Or alternatively, he just walked into the booth and we had a lovely chat. Here are the highlights. Well, we're really thrilled to be joined by Jeffrey Combs this morning. Not as thrilled as I am. Really? To be to 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 to, to join you two. Well, you've taken Indeed. time out of your schedule to come over and and, and meet with us. You're over at the Excel Center at the moment. Can you you say schedule, that? we say schedule. We're going to get into it here. <laughs> we schedule schedule. <laughs> it's good. Yes, yes. I'm over at a Star Trek convention. Huge Star Trek convention at the Excel Center. All five captains are going to be there and. Uh, the other riffraff of which I am a member. So uh, really excited about that. But I am honored that you asked me to come in here today and talk to you guys about this, that, and the other, my long career. I'm curious at this this kind of event. Is there one big green room that's full of Romulans and are all the five captains going to be kicking back? Is that going to be a fun Uh if They're always different. I've gone, gone to a number of these. You never know what you're going to run into. Generally, um, there is a green room where maybe you will run into people. I do remember one time I was uh, I was in Denver, and I was in the green room, and they had like uh, you know a display of food, and I was making a sandwich during a break, and from behind me I heard someone say, "Are those?" Cold cuts fresh. <laughs> you never hear Shatner here say that on surgery. I said, yeah, I think they are. I think, yeah, yeah, they're fresh. And as I left, he said, we're very lucky. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, we are. Mr. Shatner. You've played an astonishing number of characters in the Star Trek universe. So have you actually kept count? <laughs> I portrayed six different characters, but I recurred with three. Right. So I had the enviable joy of when the phone rang and it was my agent telling me that Star Trek would like to book me. I got the ask. I got to ask the question, which character? <laughs> which, believe me, even at the time, I was grateful for. You know, you got to have gratitude in this business and humility along with uh, some level of confidence in yourself so it was really a, you know it, it, it was an honor even then to to, to be asked to diversify to be because as an actor you know that's what you want to be uh, 
sort of known for uh, not not just the one thing you do but the hopefully the many things you can you can offer so yeah it was a dream come true there very different characters i think you describe wayun as a blessing to play oh god he's delicious <laughs> it was delicious to play. Um, it was a little harrowing at first because when they, I'd been doing a Ferengi and they, they asked me to do this new character of which I really didn't know anything about. And uh, the way Star Trek works when you play an alien is you're, you're, you, you show up on, at Paramount Studios at four in the morning and begin the makeup process. And you, you don't know what you're going to be transformed into, really. It's a complete and total... Mm. Uh, the first time anyway so you know okay i have these lines but i don't know who the guy is and then they give you this gift of this yeah. this manifestation and you stand there in the mirror and go oh there he is <laughs> i yeah. see it, it's funny because we were having a chat about um hugo weaving this week came out and he was talking about captain america and playing red skull and oh. we were sort of just really idly speculating about why he um wasn't so keen to return for that and thinking maybe that has something to do with the, the amount of prosthetics work and I wondered from your point of view having played you know Ferengi well, a lot of characters a lot, with, a lot of characters with prosthetic right. work is that is that something that you just get used to yeah. or yeah it's, it's just a, a question it's of, not only something that you get used to but you kind of uh, embrace after a while um, the prosthetic makeup uh, for an actor I think uh, you know there's two camps on this uh, some actors absolutely get swallowed by it can't handle it uh, freak out and and f- uh, freeze in their tracks or run for the door uh, not many <laughs> they they have been known to do that um, and then, then the, but the majority uh, embrace it for the gift that it is, because uh, you you can escape into that stuff, and it frees you up, mm-hmm. and it's not you anymore. Um, everybody has a, an experience like that. You dress up for Halloween or a costume party. You put on different shoes. Uh, you know, you feel different in cowboy boots than you do in Converse. Okay, or or, or boaters. You, you know, you just feel different, and uh, you just go with it, and um, it frees you up. It makes you less uh, self conscious, I suppose, and um, does a lot of the work for you in some ways if you can uh, express uh, through it. That's the trick. Yeah. That's the trick. Were those gigantic ears which you donned for Star Trek, were they uh, a blessing? Or was what, the Ferengi ears? Yeah. I hate the Ferengi <laughs> makeup. Everybody does dislike the Ferengi makeup. Huge ears, can't hear. <laughs> because there's no holes for you to hear. So it's like acting with a major head cold. Right. And there is no ventilation. So by the end of a 14, 15, 16 hour day, you are uh, head is sopping wet. Wow. When when that comes off, you are ready for it to come off. It's <laughs> the most relieving, freeing experience. But you kind of put that at the back of your head while you're you're doing the work. You know, you don't you don't you don't kind of deal with the amount of discomfort at all. You, because hey, man, everybody was always happy to be there. Yeah. It's a great camaraderie. That's the biggest thing about Star Trek that I remember coming to these conventions I get to see old friends I don't see them every day 
but I get to see them here, you know, and it's, uh, I suppose it would be like uh, veterans meeting at the, uh, you know, the the foreign wars reunion or something, you know, (laughs) so... It's great. And as well as fantasy, you, you're an icon of the horror genre as well, you know, with, with lots of things. But I guess you're, the main thing that you're recognized for is the reanimator. Yeah, I have, this, I have this weird gift of having my f- f- one foot in horror and one foot in sci-fi, you know. I always say some people collect coins and some people collect stamps. And that's sort of the way it is. A lot of people that know my horror stuff could could know or could care less that I do sci-fi and vice versa. So I'm very honored. Who knew at the beginning of my film career that I would hit it with uh, uh, Reanimator? I mean, it was really one of those happy accidents. And uh, I was doing a play in Los Angeles. Casting director said, you know, you might be right for this. And I went in and auditioned, got called back. It's yours. You know, mm-hmm. It's like, really? Okay. Yeah, good. <laughs> I honestly thought no one would ever see the movie. It was so bloody. <laughs> really. And uh, But I had a great time doing it, and it gave me a chance to work in front of, in this, for me at the time, this new medium of film, and really kind of uh, practice there's a real technique to all of that you know and so I sort of looked at it that way well this is a way to learn on the job as it were and little did I know that uh, we were laying down something that was became kind of uh, iconic and I remember uh, writing uh, an article a few years back about House of Reanimator which was a muted uh, sequel set in the White House yeah yeah that was a, a, a hope that was dashed um, it never really got off the ground for a number of reasons basically it was far too political um, uh, it was, Stuart Gordon at the time wanted to be Michael Moore and he really wanted to stick it to the Bush administration, and so he wanted Herbert to go in there and wreak havoc upon the, <laughs> the current, the, 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 the last administration. Um, I understood his sentiments, but at the same time, I was always saying, well, we're going to alienate a majority of our audience, one, and B, when did Reanimator become political? Mm. And uh, maybe we ought to stay out of that and mm. just kind of entertain. So uh, I think producers and investors kind of felt the same way okay. and said, no, we won't finance that. I still think it's a good idea if you just took away the spot on, you know, this is Bush, this is Janey, you know, watch them die. <laughs> I do kind of want to see zombie secret service agents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of that. You, but you don't have to. Uh, I was an advocate for, so let's just do it like Dr. Strangelove, where it's we're speaking of power. We're speaking of, uh, you know, how it corrupts. Absolutely. But we don't have to do impersonations when we can still make our point. Okay. But uh, that didn't happen. And um, you acted opposite a zombie cat. Peter Jackson directed a zombie baby. So I guess it was kind of inevitable the two of you would would get together at some point. Uh, we, we talked on the phone um, the a few weeks Peter ago Jackson, for, for yeah. our uh, Peter Jackson article in our, in our yeah. forthcoming issue. Um, and uh, talked about The Frighteners, which you said was a really great 
time in your life going oh, to New Zealand was, and shooting it was pivotal it was pivotal it was a a dream come true I I, I, I uh, you know it's still I still pinch myself uh, realizing that I got the part uh, I know he was looking for a long time and not finding what he was uh, looking for and um, I, I just went in with what I thought I would do and, and quite honestly I made a lot of mistakes uh, but he uh, he really eased my eased me by saying, "Look, I, I'm, I'm a real fan of Reanimator, so we got that out of the way." And then he said, "Try this, try that," and um, he was happy with my adjustments. And there you go. I think yeah. you're being. I think you're. You're maybe downplaying your own input into the character because the way he talks of it, you had a lot of good ideas, really good ideas. Well, I would say that Peter and I had uh, a, 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 a kindred uh, mm. uh, sense of humor. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. About, at least about that, certainly about that <laughs> that character and what an odd boy he was. <laughs> so, um, I tend to sometimes work uh, first from um, the, what does the guy look like? Um, and that really informs me how he is, mm. as is the case with most people. And um, Peter had some very distinct and very good, clear ideas in that area. And uh, I, I brought a few things uh, to sort of augment that. And we were very collaborative is the word that I would use. Uh, we wasted a lot of film with uh, Peter giggling on <laughs> camera. But, uh, uh, you know, the finished product, I'm so very, very, very proud of and I'm honored to have uh, to have worked with Peter, uh, uh, especially and even more proud that uh, that it was before, you know, the world became totally mm. uh, aware of how great he is. You know, it's like being there in, in the early evolvement of somebody's yeah. growth, you know. But I would say that even then, he he exuded a a, a, a real uh, um, talent and ease. Uh, he made it look very very easy, and it wasn't very. It's very complicated making a movie, but mm. he was completely and calmly in charge, mm. and uh, and spontaneous too. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he did not uh, stick to some regimented uh, idea that just had to be pushed. Uh, if he saw an opportunity in front of him, uh, uh, he was more, and his instincts would yeah. were so strong that he'd say, yeah, let's try that. Let's do that. I'm, I'm going, we're going another way now. Let's try that. Good. We'll go that way. And that was kind of how the hemorrhoids. Uh, <laughs> that's how that's how the hemorrhoids showed up. Yeah, that was sort of happened in a rehearsal, and he, and then from there he had them go out and get a hemorrhoid pillow, so that when I got in the car, I had a hemorrhoid pillow. You know, just oh, that was that's not in the script. <laughs> it's just on the fly. We did that. And on the fly, you you uh, you went into a Wellington library and, and picked up a bunch of books. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how this guy would look, and I, I, I went into the Wellington Library. I, I had this thought, you know, here I am, I'm playing this very patriotic FBI agent who would do anything for his country, uh, including infiltrate into cults and l allow them to do anything to him and his body in the name of God and country. Uh, when you go that deep, you, you are... That you're not patriotic. You're a nationalist. 
that's sort of in my head what I was thinking. And I went to the library and I um, I found a, a pictorial of young Hitler, you know, pictures of young <laughs> Hitler. And I and I brought it to Peter and I thought he would say, well, you know, no, chief, we're not going to go that far. That's what I thought he would say. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he looked down at the book and he went, yeah. Yes, that's good. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, okay, we've done it now. And now you have to take the book to the hairdresser and say, can you do this? And then for six weeks, I have to walk around Wellington going, hi, how are you? <laughs> good to see you. So. Has, uh, has Bill Shatner heard your Shatner impression? I don't think he has. No. <laughs> I know I've met good. him. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've, I've met him like three or four times and uh, it seems like every time he's like, hi, how are you? I feel like he's never met me before, but I don't, you know, that's probably the case. Uh, he meets a lot of people and so um, he interviewed me one time actually and that was a trip. He wow. did interview me. He said, how, when you do these horror movies, do you have to overact? <laughs> wow, what a question. And I, I said, well, Mr. Shatner, I can just tell you that whatever I do, I've I've, I've learned it all from you. <laughs> he moved on pretty quickly. No, he's a, he's a sweet man, and um, I, I admire him. Nice guy. Lovely guy. Lovely As you guy. said earlier on, nice guy. Yeah, I met him for about two minutes because I just had to meet Herbert West. I was so excited because I do indeed absolutely love The Frighteners. I've written a blog for Empire Online um, in a, a series about cult characters and films that I love about him years ago. And I've always wanted to interview him. So it was it was a thrill to be able to do it twice this, um, this month because once for the magazine. But he was great. Fantastic. Uh, and it's time to wrap things up now with the week's new releases in the cinema. Uh, first up, it's a long-awaited return of one of the silver screen's great icons. Men want to be him. Women want to bed him. I'm talking, of course, about Michael Myers, star of the timely reissue of John Carpenter's Halloween. Still one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Yeah, no, probably... Yeah, speaking for myself, at least, mm. I wouldn't have said that, you know... Yeah, women don't want to go to bed with Michael Myers. Do, do you really want to be him? Uh, well, he gets things done. He's efficient. <laughs> right. I'm just going to move my chair a little bit further away Most here. of those things um, involve hanging around outside houses. <laughs> he does, that's true. He hangs around a lot. And he's very good at stabbiness. Not that I want to be. I don't want to be. Oh, God. This has gone down a dark alley for you. Um, so, Halloween. Still brilliant. Yes. Are we, are we, yes. Are we fans Sorry. of Halloween? Do, 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 do. Yes, Thanks. we are. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> I meant yes. Uh, Ali, Halloween. are you still Freddy Cat? Where do you stand on Halloween? See, that's one of those, you know, when you have horror films that you have to watch, otherwise you're kind of not a human being, that mm -hmm. and The Shining and a whole bunch of others. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. It's even when people say, as you say, oh, scaredy cats, you can't not watch Halloween. It's just one of those seminal movies. The problem with Halloween is uh, it, it's been slightly watered. The impact has been slightly watered down over the years by all the copycats that have, that have nicked the jump scares. And But what it has is just amazing cinematography. And the, the, the widescreen, the Panavision framing by John Carpenter is sublime. The soundtrack, also by John Carpenter, is amazing. The performances of characters, Dr. Loomis, Laurie Strode, Michael Myers, uh, it's just fantastic. It's one of my favourite films of mm. all time. If you've not seen it with an audience, which I haven't, actually, um, then do so this weekend because it's been re-released I think in, in key cities around the UK so do yourself a favour check it out uh, and then skip Halloween 2 
although the soundtrack's fantastic, go straight to Halloween 3, which is completely bonkers, and then skip all the other Halloween movies, <laughs> except for H2O, which brings H2O Jamie Curtis okay, back. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. It's not too bad. Uh, okay, now it's time. Now it is time to discuss the long-awaited return of one of the silver screen's great icons. It's been four years since the disappointing Quantum of Solace, but Daniel Craig is back, back, back as Bond, Bond, Bond in Skyfall, re-energized and reinvigorated, and trying to prevent Javier Bardem as bad guy Silva from dialing M for murdered uh, thoughts on Skyfall Helen you're always a huge Bond fan so I'm going <laughs> to start with you did this one turn you around because you're a bit with uh, Paul Greengrass in this because yes. Paul Greengrass a few years ago described James Bond to me for Empire as and this is one of the great quotes I think mm. a right wing imperialist fuckface yes. so you're pretty much in the same camp I have you? always loved Paul Greengrass <laughs> um, no I mean I don't hate all the Bond films although I have trouble remembering which is which sometimes um, I, I, everyone does I really liked Casino Royale um, Quantum Solace obviously not so much this for me is a very good Bond film I think it's not quite as good as Casino Royale um, much better than Quantum Solace but it's much more of a Bond film than Casino, Casino Royale was because mm-hmm. I think where Casino Royale succeeded was in stripping out a lot of what I find really irritating about Bond this puts a lot of it back in again but for the most part makes it work ish such as well um, there's a fight in a pit full of dangerous animals for example um, which uh, some kind of over the top little touches like that there's obviously the kind of the flair of Bond which I did enjoy that that shot where you've seen it in the trailer you know the back flies off a train Bond lands in the the aisle between the seats and just his cufflinks you know that's that's pretty James Bond and it was a cool shot you've got to you've got to it's a very cool shot yeah Um, Judy Dench I think is terrific in this I mean Daniel Craig is a terrific Bond um, and this looks like it looks better than any other Bond film I've ever seen. Sumptuous photography by Roger Deakins. Absolutely terrific cinematography. I I had some issues with the story, and a lot of them I can't talk about because they're spoilers. Didn't Javier Bardem remind any of you guys of Tim Curry a little bit? <laughs> I thought he was very curry. Tim Curry, a little bit. It's, I, I thought Silver was was a bit Tim Curry in Loaded Weapon. Slightly. I was so terrified of his hair, I couldn't really concentrate on what he was saying. Someone Facebooked out to say he reminded him of David Williams, but I didn't. I didn't quite get that. Uh, I really like Silver. I think the movie kicks up a notch when he comes into it, and there's a really nice scene where he plays with, um, well, notions of Bond's sexuality and his sexuality, which is very brave for mm-hmm. a Bond villain. Um, and uh, then he. But after that, he kind of ditches that stuff and just goes completely mental for the last uh, half an hour or so of the film. Uh, and it's very, very effective. Daniel Craig, good. Very, very solid as Bond. Some people have said that uh, this movie is heading towards the more sort of Roger Moorery uh sort of excesses in terms of one-liners and, and things like there that. There is a tip and to live and let die. There's a tip to live. There's not a live and let die. lizard stepping. There Indeed. Are, there are um, nods to everything. This yeah. movie is just full of hat tips. If, if you're a Bondophile, then you're going to get such a kick out of this because it's obviously coming out for the 50th anniversary since Doctor No. But without being as cheesy as Die Another Day was when they pulled a- out all the old gadgets. Absolutely correct. I mean, it really... I think it's really subtle. You have to hunt for some of them. Uh, for example, the, there's a boat which is exactly like uh, Scaramanga's junk in um, not like that in the Man with the Golden Gun. But it's true. There are no, there are very deliberate nods throughout. Indeed, but the point about uh, some people have said that Craig seems uncomfortable with more like one-liners. I don't think he. I don't think I he don't is. Think I think he's he absolutely is. fine with them. And the end of this movie, I'm not going to say obviously anything about the end of the movie in terms of details, but it certainly seems to be heading towards that classic sort of Connery Moore breezy romp kind of Bond, uh, with a bit of the the realism that Craig and Sam Mendes and the producers want in. And I I am hugely excited now for what they're going to do next. 
but uh, it's fantastic and it's as much Judy Dench's Bond film as it is Bond Bond film and great action looks fantastic good performances very very good four stars we gave it I'd agree with that I think it's Craig's best Bond film I was buzzing out of this I've got to say you know I, I'm trying to be critical and kind of analytical in a positive way and, and, and not, not be too over the top but I, I walked out with a huge grin on my face Bond has got his swagger back I think after The Quantum of Solace which felt a bit timid and small and in the shadow of these other big action films that were coming out and this is as big as anything you'll see and, Yeah, um, it's fun great jokes in it as well which I never expected Mm. really funny stuff on occasion I, I really was laughing quite a lot yeah there's a siege element that's never really happened in a Bond film before which on one hand was interesting because it hadn't been done on the other hand felt a bit bizarre in a strange way um, no I, li- I, li- spoiler, I like it but... uh, yeah we, we talk about that in the uh, spoiler podcast mm. so um, uh, go to Lair for all the answers and speculation and random nonsense that you seek. Uh, As you might expect, uh, most distributors are running scared of the big bad Bond this week, uh, but there are a couple of films that are worthy of note. Room 237 is an astounding documentary which chronicles a growing obsession with deciphering and decoding every single frame of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and it tackles some absolutely bonkers theories. There's a sort of basically a subculture of people out there who think that this movie has the answer to everything, the life, (laughs) the universe and everything. (laughs) 42. Yeah. Oh, is it? Mm. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's, that's sorted out then. Um, and we gave it five stars. Interesting. I wonder if there's any hidden meaning in that. It I is brilliant. Add, it is really good. Well, hang on. Five is if you put two and three together, you get five. And if you take two away from seven, you also get five. Holy shit. So they basically told us to give this movie five stars. Wait a minute. There are seven letters in Kubrick. You mean Kubrick's ghost came back and wrote the review? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. <gasps> Ali's possessed by Stanley Kubrick. This has oh become a chilling podcast indeed. Oh God, we're going to do 89 takes of this podcast. Uh, while Ross Noble, the brilliant comedian, uh, I saw him once on Saturday, he's phenomenal. Uh, he makes his feature film debut as a killer clown in Stitches, a low-budget Irish comedy horror. Let's... let's decent and gruesome enough. Uh, next week there's Silent Hill Revelations 3D, the sequel to Silent Hill. Um, we haven't screened it to critics yet. That is odd. It seems odd. <laughs> now you mention it. It seems odd. Got to <laughs> what, what indeed? Presumably the scariest film ever made. Probably. It's a bit like that Monty Python joke where everyone who sees Silent Hill Revelations dies horribly almost immediately afterwards. Um, that, okay, uh, that's it. I think we're done. I, I think, think we're we done. Uh, that's it from this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film related fun uh, when we'll be back to normal uh, and talking about The Master and Rust and Bone, hopefully with no panic attacks or outbreaks of Nookie. Uh, we'll be talking to three legends of a very different kind in one corner Matt Smith Doctor Who himself we'll be talking to him uh, there'll be a bit next week's podcast and also a Matt Smith Doctor Who special it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside timey-wimey-ness there that was weird timey-wimey-ness never mind is that a Doctor Who reference that was a Doctor Who reference I don't watch it okay. uh, spoilers <laughs> which is why I'm not doing the interview uh, in, in, in another corner it's only the third bleeding James Bond, Sir Roger Moore himself, uh, which is happening after we record this podcast. I'm inordinately excited. In only a matter of hours. <laughs> it would seem he's already here. I'll just sit quietly in the corner while you finish. <laughs> it's an actual line. Does he say that to someone? <laughs> is that basically... <laughs> anyway, there'll also be a Roger Moore special and there'll be a little bit in next week's podcast. And the third legend... And I can't stress this enough, the word legend. Yeah, you can. Is Jason Biggs. And that's a that's a really fun interview with cinema's foremost pie shagger. Uh, until then, it's going to be epic. 
It's going to be epic. Until then, it's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. <laughs> it's goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. <laughs> it's goodbye from Nick. I'm going to go and play Monopoly. And it's goodbye from me. See you next week.